Hello and welcome to the second in a special series of live programmes from the British Science Festival in Aberdeen. Today we'll discover the technology for seeing through your clothes, that's very appropriate for the naked scientists, and we'll find out why lonely heart teenage water voles can save a whole population. I'm Ben Valsler and I'm joined by Martha Henriquez. Hello. Also today, we'll find out why NASA is returning to the Van Allen belt, and we'll be exploring the diet foods of the future, which will make you feel fuller for longer. If you'd like to take part in the programme, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, comment at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now first, did you ever send off for a pair of X-ray specs advertised in the back of a comic? The promise to be able to see through clothes must have been very tempting for very many people, I think, but it sadly wasn't to be. However, a scanning technology developed fairly recently for security services seems to be able to do just that. And we're joined by Tim Drysdale from Glasgow University. Tim, could you tell us what this technology is and how it works? Sure, there's a couple of systems that are in airports now that use either some X-rays at a very low dose or something called millimetre waves, which are like what your mobile phone produces, but just a lot shorter in wavelengths so that they can see the detail of what's underneath your clothes. And literally like what we thought Superman could do or what uh, Pierce Brosnan has done in uh, some of his James Bond films, they can see through your clothes to see what's underneath so we know... Are you taking anything dodgy onto the plane? <laughs> so with a traditional medical X-ray, the X-rays can penetrate through skin, but they encounter the denser bone and therefore can't get through, and that's how we see the sort of negative of what's there. Are we doing the same thing but with millimetre waves instead? Yeah, the airport scanning technology is... Let's turn the temperature down on the X-rays so that there's just a very, very little amount, and instead of getting through the skin, they actually bounce off, and so... A medical x-ray, obviously, as you said, goes all the way through, but the only things that can stop it are the bones, so we can't tell the soft tissue apart, which means with a medical x-ray, it'd be a little bit challenging to see plastic explosive versus skin or kidney. Uh, What we do, turn the temperature down with the x-rays, and it bounces off, and you can tell from how much comes back what's there. And the same with the millimetre waves. It's like radar. We're looking at what's scattered off the body. So it should be really very easy to tell something hard and metallic like a gun from something soft and fleshy like your skin. Absolutely. Humans are curvy and soft and guns are straight and quite hard. So they also have very different properties at the wavelengths of the radiation that we're looking at. So they do show up uh, typically as a much brighter spot with a nice straight line that a computer system can automatically say, hey, I think you should check this guy's right armpit. There's something strange in there. <laughs> so the images that it gives you are obviously not like photographs. Much like with x-rays, it's a limited range of colour that we're seeing because it's not the colours that our eyes can pick out. It's not visible radiation. What do we see? How do we convert it into something that we can use to look for weapons? Well, the image an operator sees in one of the systems where there is a human, and not all of them use a human, uh, looks to me a lot like what you see when you go to the art gallery and start looking at the nice uh, naked people statues. You know, it looks like a naked person, uh, except that you can't quite see enough detail for it to be something that needs an R18 rating on it, although I'm <laughs> sure many people probably think it ought to. And it just has that monochrome grey look. And you could put false colour on it if you wanted to, but there's not much point because it's really obvious when that curve turns into a straight line that means something something's not right. And I think you've hit on 
one of the, the problems with this, and that's that people feel it's invasive, and they think that there's somebody looking at a, a naked picture of them which they haven't really given permission to do. But these are in airports throughout the world. So what have we done? What have we put in place to allay some of these fears? I think what's probably happening is that the debate is following the introduction of the machines. That's maybe not the best way to do it. And from a researcher's perspective, when I go through a system at an airport, I'm sitting there going, right, what type is it? Uh, How much can they see and how well is it working? And are they going to spot anyone when I'm going through? So I've got a very different interest in what machine are you looking at me with. But I can imagine your average traveller would be sitting there thinking... Am I getting x-rays? Is this millimetre wave? Is it just a puffer that's looking for explosive residues? So it's useful, I think, to be talking about these things so that people can find out about them without having to slow a queue down by handing out a leaflet to everybody. So from your perspective as a researcher, what's so interesting about these? The security benefits are fairly self-evident. So what are you looking at them for? It's kind of strange in a way when you think, hang on, am I still 14 years old? (laughs) Uh, It's really interesting when you do research on, say, uh, like a device of some sort, and you think, well, where will this might be used? And one of the sorts of systems that the things that we look at at Glasgow might be used is in future versions of systems like this. And it gives you a really interesting set of constraints to satisfy that maybe haven't been satisfied in a previous engineering challenge. So there's a whole new set of research you have to do. And because it does have this pretty interesting... Uh, potential application and seeing through clothes in addition to all sorts of medical benefits and all sorts of other things, you end up thinking, hey, if we can get this one thing right, it could be useful in a whole lot of things. And sometimes it's good to talk about the spooky stuff because that grabs people's attention and you can say, look, this is what else is going on behind that as well. X-rays, of course, are a type of ionising radiation. There there is a health risk to being exposed to X-rays. I assume that's one of the reasons why we've moved to a non-X-ray system, but how do these sort of terahertz millimetric waves compare? The resolution is theoretically limited to be not as good as X-rays because you can't resolve things that are less than a wavelength. And at 100 gigahertz, which is a good millimetre wave frequency, the wavelength in air is 3 millimetres. So typically you should be able to get to half a wavelength, or 1.5 millimetres. But in practice... One wavelength is about as good as anybody can make optics. But that's enough to see pretty good detail in these images. And with the X-rays, maybe the resolution is a little bit higher, but I think probably it's better to avoid the health implications if you can. So the advantage is the resolution is good enough with the millimetre wave systems. Let's roll with that. Okay, that sounds like a a good place to bring this to a close. Thank you ever so much. That's Tim Drysdale from Glasgow University. And still to come, we'll find out why NASA is sending satellites into the Van Allen Belt, a patch of radiation that normal satellites avoid, otherwise they themselves get irradiated. Martha. Fish oil has been shown to decrease muscle wasting in elderly people if combined with a regime of strength exercises. Muscle wasting, or sarcopenia, affects around 20% of 50 to 70-year-olds and around half of over 90-year-olds, as Stuart Gray at the University of Aberdeen told me. So the exact cause of muscle wasting or sarcopenia uh, is not actually known. There's There's a variety of theories and possible contributing factors, including things like a change in the hormone levels within the circulation where, as you get older, males tend to have lower testosterone levels. There's also a reduction in growth hormone production. 
There's also this state of chronic low-grade inflammation where elderly people in their blood have about two to four-fold increases in levels of markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein, interleukin-6. And these are thought to essentially, to put simply, waste the muscle away. In a pilot study, Gray and his colleagues monitored 60 elderly patients with sarcopenia over a 12-week strength exercise programme. Those given fish oil supplements had almost double the improvement in muscle strength than those given olive oil supplements as a control. So with our pilot study we carried out, we found that in response to 12 weeks of resistance exercise training, the control group increased their muscle strength by around about 10-11%, whereas the group that were taking fish oil supplements, they actually increased their strength by 20%. We also did a variety of tests of functional abilities, and that's something that happens with sarcopenia, that elderly people lose their ability to carry out simple daily tasks like rising from a chair, stepping onto a bus. So we try and recreate them in the lab by timing how long it takes people to get up and down from a chair. We do we measure walking speed, we do balance tests, and we found that, particularly walking speed, we found that, yes, it improved with the control or placebo group, but the adaptation was greater again in the, in the fish oil group. The mechanism by which fish oil reduces sarcopenia isn't yet known, but Gray and his team are focusing on two likely areas. Fish oil is known to have anti-inflammatory type effects, so this chronic low-grade inflammation that we're talking about in elderly blood may well be reduced by the consumption of fish oil. Basically, these omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil replace the omega-6 fatty acids within the cell membranes of immune cells, muscle cells and it reduces the pro-inflammatory nature of the, the mediators produced by these cells. Another thing that fish oil does is, as I said, these fatty acids are incorporated into the membrane and we, we think that it may well alter the proteins that transduce signal mechanisms to actually cause muscle to grow. So we're looking into these uh, signal transduction molecules as well to see whether they're changed by fish oil consumption. To test these ideas... Gray is following up the pilot with another study involving more patients over a longer period of time. So, first major thing, we're going, we're going to recruit more people into the study so we can get more, a more robust, uh, well-powered, statistically valid uh, results. We're going to do an 18-week intervention instead of a 12-week intervention just to maximise the potential of detecting any changes on top of measures like muscle strength and functional abilities, which we will make again, we're also going to look at using MRI imaging to measure the muscle area, cross-sectional area of muscle, the muscle volume, and also the amount of fat that is infiltrated into muscle. Uh, and that will be of the, of the thigh muscle we'll look at specifically. We're also going to take muscle samples, where we're going to look more at the mechanistic changes in these signal transduction proteins, measure the fatty acids that have been incorporated into the into the muscle and also we're going to make a measure of protein synthesis which is which is the mechanism through which muscles uh, muscles grow so that would be the main things that we're hoping to to take further recruitment for that study is starting later this year in the meantime older people hoping to combat sarcopenia can either get down to the gym or exercise with resistance bands in the comfort of their own home Thanks, Martha. Now, space, as you can imagine, is a dangerous place. Just outside the Earth is a region of high-energy radiation that can fry the electronics in satellites and wouldn't do astronauts any favours either. 
But NASA have decided to send a pair of satellites right into this radiation belt to help space scientists like Lancaster University's Jim Wilde understand space weather. The Radiation Belt Storm Probes mission is a pair of NASA satellites uh, launched at the end of August from Florida. It's basically NASA returning to the radiation belt. So, so if we think back to the very beginning of the space age, uh, there was a, a launch of a satellite called Explorer 1, which was the United States' first ever successful satellite. So this is at the height of the space race, about four months after Sputnik was launched. In effect, uh, they, they decided they needed something on the satellite, scientific. They put a Geiger counter on top. And to the surprise of the scientists' concern, they detected that the Earth was surrounded by belts of high-energy particles, so radiation, so high-energy electrons and, and, and protons and um, alpha particles, so sort of particle radiation. This is the Van Allen belt. So this is the so-called Van Allen belt. James Van Allen was the sort of lead investigator on, on the package of instruments. What do they actually look like? Are they really belts? The best way to think of them is like donuts. There's, a, there's an inner and an outer belt. So the inner belt is made up mainly of electrons and protons, and the outer belt's mainly electrons. And if you imagine sort of a nested pair of donuts surrounding the Earth in, in the equatorial plane. How big are they? Well, the outer belt typically sits about... Uh, the space scientists use a measurement of planetary radii because it keeps things nice and simple. So, so if you think of distance from the Earth about seven or eight planetary radii out, and so if I quickly do the maths in my head, that's something like uh, about 50,000 kilometres out, something like that from the, from the surface of the Earth. There are a couple of Earth radii deep, so they're probably a few tens of thousands of kilometres, but they're quite variable. So sometimes they can be quite thin, not containing very much material. And other times they can be very full of very high energy material. And that change is, is indicating that there are processes in the space environment that are accelerating and energising particles and filling up the radiation belts. And that's a, that's a really hot topic. Where that, how that happens isn't quite well understood, and that's why NASA have gone back to the radiation belts. So what, where they get that radiation from in the first place? These are the inner part of the magnetosphere. So, so the Earth's magnetic field interacts with uh, the solar wind, which is constantly streaming outwards from the sun. And in the heart of the magnetosphere is, are, are the radiation belts. It looks like particles in the magnetosphere basically diffuse inwards and fill up the radiation belts. And as they come in, they get accelerated. But the exact mechanism for how that acceleration happens is really poorly understood. Uh, there are a couple of candidates. Uh, there is a thought that as the particles diffuse inwards, they pick up energy basically just by moving inwards through the magnetosphere. And there are also theories that they pick up energy from waves in the magnetosphere. So if you imagine that the Earth's magnetic field is constantly being buffeted by the solar wind, it will cause magnetic field lines to shake and wobble. And, and energetic particles on those field lines will pick up energy. So a bit like a, a surfer can pick up energy from a wave and that will accelerate the surfer along on the wave. It's possible that particles will pick up energy from wobbles on the field line, a bit like so they're sort of energetic particle surfers on the, on the wave of a field line. So we know that typically you get a large, for example, a coronal mass ejection coming from the sun, an explosion of solar material. If it arrives and impacts on the Earth, the processes that fill up the radiation belt seem to be enhanced. So the radiation belts fill up and swell, so they fill with charged particles and then over several days they start to drain as these particles leak out again and when they do leak out what does that manifest on earth as how do we know that's happening or are there any manifestations 
We didn't know the radiation belts existed at first because it, it, we, we didn't really understand the sort of topology of the magnetic field around the Earth once you, you left the top of the atmosphere. Some of the particles will, will leak out. So, so the, the, the particles we generally refer to them as being trapped, they bounce from a field line which is sort of pinching in the north and the southern polar regions. and It bounces from one pinched end of the field line to the other. So sometimes this is called a magnetic bottle. It looks like some of the particles actually leak out through the ends of the bottle. So they, they come out at, at near the North Pole, they're out near the South Pole. And some of those will actually precipitate down into the atmosphere and they will cause the atmosphere to glow. And hey, presto, you get the northern lights. So it, it's all part of a bigger picture that when the magnetosphere is disturbed, space weather is very, um, very disturbed, then the radiation belts fill up. We also start to see the, uh, the aurora becoming more dynamic as, as some of the material leaks out into the upper atmosphere. What will the new mission actually interrogate? How will they be trying to understand the belts better? There's a variety of things that the new mission is trying to achieve. I mean, firstly, these are spacecraft designed to fly in the radiation belts. So so to put this into context, geostationary orbit, where we have all the satellites that service human communications from space, um, they are generally just at the edge of the radiation belts. But when the radiation belts become very active and they swell, the spacecraft in geostationary orbit can be engulfed by high-energy particles. And that can be quite damaging to the, um, the, the spacecraft and also interfere with the operations. So most spacecraft are designed to not go in the radiation belt. So actually, to, to build something to go in the radiation belts is, is, is quite a challenge. You've got to build something which will be sensitive to these very high-energy particles, but not so sensitive that it then becomes damaged. Also, the spacecraft, uh, there's a pair of them, so as they will follow each other around in orbit, separated slightly in time, so they'll go through the same region sort of a couple of hours apart, what they can basically do is see how changes occur in the radiation belt. Normally with satellites, you only have one measurement, and, and satellites are always moving around, so actually trying to build up a picture of what's happening is very difficult. So if you can fly more than one satellite, that really helps you, and it allows you to see how things have changed over the space of hours or days as you fly through the same region at different times. What are they hoping to, to learn from this? Because is it expected that we'll find that there are other impacts on the Earth's system and maybe the weather, maybe even climate change and things like that, which are relevant to the, the, the activity of the sun and also the radiation belts that we're just not aware of at the moment? Well, these missions always have a habit of starting off trying to answer one or two key questions and then ending up just starting off a whole series of new questions. Ideally, they're aimed at figuring out how do the radiation belts get filled and where do the particles come from, where do they go? What it will also start to point to by answering those questions is, especially where they go, will start to tell us about where some of the energy goes. So some of the energy is going to come downwards, some of the energy is going to come down into the top of the atmosphere, and that's going to almost certainly heat the upper atmosphere slightly. Now, this is probably quite a small effect in terms of things like climate change. Um, it's unlikely that the radiation belts are powering climate change, and we've, we've made some big mistake about fossil fuels, for example. But we do need to figure out the quantities and, and, and put a, a number on roughly how much energy is coming into the top of the atmosphere from, from that route. Jim Wilde from Lancaster University. It's not just NASA who risk dangerous environments for uncertain gain. Research here at the University of Aberdeen shows that hormonal teenage water voles do the same, risking exposure and predators to find a new life away from their family home. Professor Xavier Lambin has been studying water voles in Scotland for nearly 15 years and he joins us now. Thank you ever so much for coming. First of all, what are water voles and what is their lifestyle like? So water voles are large rodents, about 300 grams, and they really look more like, like a, a guinea pig than, than a rat. They've quite a, a round face. And we've been studying them in uh, northwest Scotland where they live at a very, very low density, very far away from the neighbours. 
And with that comes a whole number of problems, such as finding a mate when hormones kick in and you want to reproduce. Now, of course, if you live a long way from your neighbours, then presumably the animals that live close to you are your immediate family. So there's a, a pressure, a genetic pressure, to get away from your family in order to reproduce with somebody with, whose genes are a bit different? Very much so. In a system where we work, voles typically live in single family group. They uh, occupy small habitat patches, and those are not very large, so there's not space for more than one family. So if you stay at home, you will be at risk of incest or close inbreeding, and that's something that voles try to, do, to avoid. So to avoid this, they basically hit the road when they are about one to two months old. And in doing so, they cross some highly unsuitable habitat that is full of dangers, lots of predators, no known shelters. So quite a few of them uh, perish in that process. But a few adventurous waterfalls are able to locate other patch where they could encounter another conspecific. But finding a patch is only half a problem because you also find, you have to find a patch that has also been visited at the same time by another vole of the opposite sex, preferably, that is arriving at the same time. And that is a very, very low probability event. So voles must... Uh, again and again uh, um, disperse and visit a whole number of patches over weeks or months. And in doing this, in doing this they, tr- they cover enormous distance, distance vastly larger than what we ever thought they were able to do. What sort of, so we're talking about something the size of a guinea pig. That's right. So I would assume that it could, it could probably maybe go a mile or so. What, what sorts of distances do we actually see? Well, volleyballs are about 10 centimetres long, 300 grams, not very big, very short legs. Um, but indeed, on average, they disperse three and a half kilometers, 3,500 3, 3, meters. But a few of them have to go as far as 15 kilometers before they find the, 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 right, uh, the right partner. So these are scales that are well beyond what anything was able to, de- to detect before, and it's only much longer than we ever expected they would be able to do. So that's a very long distance, a very risky strategy. Do all of the offspring do this? Do all of the sort of three-month-old animals leave the nest in this way and, and face such really terrible odds just to try and find a mate? No, some of them will uh, inherit the natal territory. Those animals are quite short-lived, so no, your average wood of all will live about two years. So if you are patient and lucky, you might uh, uh, inherit the, the maternal home range and you may be able to reproduce there. But quite a large proportion, more than half, basically have to leave and go somewhere else. So how do we know this? Have you actually been tracking families of water voles to piece together this story? Yeah. We've been using three types of data. We uh, are catching those animals, giving them a, 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 an ear tag, so we, we recapture some of them in different places. But we also use the power of DNA technology and DNA forensic. So we are able to reconstruct the pedigree of all those animals that we are uh, capt- capturing over 150 square kilometres. And when we find the mother in a different patch from her offspring, we can infer that one of them has dispersed. But we also use the power of VHF uh, radio transmitters, which enables us to track more the behavior of those individuals when they are on the move. So we use a range of, uh, of data. Finally, we have uh, 15 years of surveys of those patches. And by looking at the spatial structure of those patches that are occupied and unoccupied, we're able to infer the probability of a patch being colonized by its neighbors. So having a population that, that is as sparsely spread out as this in small family groups that puts you at a very large risk of predation of a disease very easily wiping out huge numbers of the population how does this migration or or these huge journeys does that help to safeguard the species or does it actually put them at further risk because when you know you are somewhere safe you may as well stay there 
Well, yeah, if you are born somewhere, it means that the patch where you're born were at least of good enough quality for your parents to be able to, to reproduce. So, so that, that is one, one cue. But also being at very low density means it's pretty hard for a predator to make a living feeding on very sparsely populated waterfalls. So there's not very many predators in those systems, but they also have to exploit a range of patches. So there is a risk if, uh, if your, the neighboring colony has been uh, hit by an otter or a stoat, that animal may well move to your patch after having finished eating your neighbors. So, so we detect a, some spatial signature of what we call the, the, the wave of death, that if you lose a neighbor, you are, your priority of going extinct is increasing quite substantially. And this effect diffuses in space for up to three and a half kilometers or so. Furthermore, those, some of those dispersers, when they are exploring the world and trying to find this, uh, the, the right partner, they may uh, infect neighboring patches with disease that, that uh, would have been prevalent in the natal patch. And we think this may also contribute to this pattern of spatial correlation, whereby several patches tend to have a shared fate. So there must be a huge advantage to the existing family if they find they have a teenage waylaid from a different group who's come along and they join it. He could be carrying any sort of disease, but the reproductive advantage to having new blood, new genes brought into your family must outweigh the disease burden that they could be carrying. Yes, uh, certainly, but we don't really know to what extent voles are able to discriminate or find relatedness. They probably know very well who their family members are, but beyond that, they do, we do not know if they are cousins or of more, more distant relatives. Uh, familiarity is uh, partly uh, 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 the cue that animals use for relatedness, and if you are from over the hill, no, you might as well be from very far away over the hill. <laughs> so, just finally, it sounds like it's actually quite a tough life for them. They have to go a long way just to find a mate. There's risk of predation, there's risk of disease. And it sounds like the loss of one of these... I want to call it a node. It sounds like there's a network of different little families. The loss of one of these nodes may actually signal quite a serious problem for all of the neighbouring ones. As an ecological system, it must be quite a difficult thing to, to manage, to understand and to model. Yet those systems that we call metapopulations, population of populations, are notorious to, uh, for being subjected to, to thresholds of persistence. That is, you may remove, say, 10% of the patches with no obvious ill effect. 20% it might be okay, but there are typically uh, thresholds. If you go beyond that, if you remove too much of the habitat, too much of the, of the potential for colonization, the system may, may, may collapse and unfortunately, those systems tend to collapse rather slowly because you will still have some colonies of waterfalls present there, even though the system is doomed because there is not a sufficiently high rate of uh, colonization to compensate the rate of extinction. And there's a real concern in conservation biology that many of the patches of the habitats that we have been damaging, fra uh, fragmenting, uh, are part of what is called this extinction depth. They may be, you know, they may be doomed. There is no scope for persistence. But as long as there is still one colony of waterfall or another species there, you will have the appearance that the, the species is still able to persist. So there's a real concern that some of them are already doomed, but we don't see it yet. Thank you very much. That's Professor Xavier Lambin from Aberdeen University. He's been studying waterfalls in the untouched Scottish Highlands. And finally, it's often said that we're facing an obesity epidemic in the Western world, with all the health implications that come with it. Researchers here in Aberdeen are now trying to develop new types of diet food that help you cut down by making you feel fuller for longer. I spoke to Dr Alexandra Johnstone, who is researching the role that proteins play in making you feel full. 
Well, I'm interested in appetite control and that mostly is applied within the context of weight loss. Uh, because one of the main reasons why we fail to lose weight is because we feel hungry. So if we can develop dietary strategies that help control appetite, then we'll help people lose weight. So regardless of the content of the diet itself, the, the problem is that we keep eating and we eat more than we should. Yes, we have a huge obesity epidemic in the UK and you know it would be nice to think we would have preventative strategies to stop our waistlines expanding further, but we also need therapy. So it's not just drug therapy, it's not just bariatric surgery. We need other lifestyle approaches to help people maintain and manage their body weight. So what is it that stops our appetite? How do we actually feel full? Is it more than just literally filling up the bag that is our stomach? Well, the volume of food, of course, is important and and that's kind of governed from the stomach. But the work that I'm interested in is the role of protein and influencing how full we feel. And that's, that's when I use the word satiety. So what I'm interested in is protein-induced satiety. So how what is it about protein, the macronutrient protein, that helps fill us up and makes us feel fuller for an extended period of time? Just to remind you, our protein sources are primarily uh, from meat, whether red meat or fish or poultry, but can also be non-meat sources from cereals, dairy products and peas, beans and pulses. Protein, of course, is a, a huge overarching term for anything that's made up of a long chain of amino acids. So it really could be any source of protein or are we looking at specific proteins that we think have an effect? The work that I've done would tend to indicate that uh, vegetable and meat source protein are both effective at influencing appetite during weight loss. So that's encouraging. So it gives us insight to a variety of different sources that we can use to try and influence how full we feel. So what do we think is actually happening when we eat protein compared to, let's say, a high fat diet or a high carbohydrate diet? That's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer, unfortunately, but some of the mechanisms that will be involved is when the protein reaches the stomach uh, and then is digested and partly absorbed, then that will influence the gut hormones that are released from the stomach and they are fed directly into the brain via the vagus nerve. So we know that that's potentially one of the mechanisms. Other mechanisms, as you said, is the amino acid structure of the proteins and that they, the change in, in flux of amino acid concentration in the blood would potentially also influence the brain. And I keep mentioning the brain because it's our traditional view that the brain is very important in regulating and sensing changes in energy um, and as it's thought to be our t- traditional sort of hunger and fullness centre. So what are we going to do now to investigate this further? If we still need to shed some light on the the physiological mechanism, what can we start doing? Today I've been speaking about work that's funded by the EU. It's a very large multi-million project across uh, nine European countries and 18 academic and food industry partners. So it's pulling together all that expertise to develop new products that can be tried and tested in humans to help control appetite. And skipping forward a few years, within the, the SATIN grant or Satiety Innovation, is, is the name of the grant, we'll be looking at how diet can influence appetite with a view to helping people lose weight. So lots of research is done telling us 
what foods we should and shouldn't eat and the right sort of balance and how much red meat we're supposed to eat per day and so on. You're taking that a step further and looking at developing new foods that have the right protein mix or the right components to actually make us feel fuller. That's exactly right, yes. And we'll be testing it in a whole diet. It's going to be done in Denmark, so we have volunteers where they've provided all of their food items for an extended period of time, say six months. So we'll be able to look at changes in body weight over that prolonged period of time. So it's quite a challenging project. The other way to look at this, though, is that it, protein is responsible for telling people that they're full. And we know some people in conditions where they might be ill need to actually eat more and they need to overcome their own feeling of fullness in order to take on more calories. Can we do essentially the reverse of what we're talking about and engineer foods so that people can take more on before they feel satisfied? Yeah, that's a very good point to make and that, you know, although we're dealing with the obesity epidemic, there is a small proportion in the UK, nonetheless extremely important, and that's the elderly undernourished. And, um, Protein probably does have a role to play and certainly some of my work involved in other EU-funded projects looking at the role of uh, protein in a liquid form and how that influences appetite and food intake. So in that sense, it's used as a between-meal kind of supplement in order to give them essential nutrients and vitamins and minerals in a drink form that can help potentially improve quality of life. Dr Alexandra Johnstone from Aberdeen University. And that's it for today's special edition of The Naked Scientists from the British Science Festival here in Aberdeen. We'll be back with more at the same time tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.